This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. There's four kind of approaches to how what you might think dignity is generally, and then that um, can be used to build a concept of eco- the idea of economic dignity. So you can kind of think about dignity as intrinsic to all people. This is the way that it's like employed in the Declaration of Human Rights. There's lots of places where we talk about dignity as an intrinsic quality to a person. Those are the wise words of Jeremiah Brown. Jeremiah is Research Fellow in Social Policy at the Centre for Social Impact. He's done some amazing work on topics such as economic dignity and applying the capability approach to understand how different kinds of disadvantage can constrain people's freedom in established democracies. Jeremiah was previously the ANZ Tony Nicholson Fellow at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. He was a referral into the show via Gemma Carey, who was also recently on the podcast, where she extensively quotes his incredible work. So I definitely recommend checking out that episode too. Humans of Purpose is now 100% community powered and advertising free, with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover the majority of my monthly costs of production. This week, we welcome social enterprise humanism to the podcast as a Patreon supporter, and they're the first organization to support us via our Patreon family. They're an amazing fit for the podcast, given the incredible work that they're doing to solve global poverty through supporting the production of custom tote bags, t-shirts, and lanyards. Head to humanismglobal.com to learn more about this amazing work that they're doing. A big thank you, as always, to our wonderful Patreon community of individual supporters, including Clyde, Susie, Kynan, Deb, Sue K, Carmen, Misha, Sue P, Joel H, Levi, Jules, Sally, Will, B, Lyndon, Olivia, Joe, McCartan, Joel F, and Stuart. Wow, that was a mouthful. You, too, can become a monthly Patreon supporter for as little as the price of a single cup of coffee at $4. Of course, you can choose to support us at whatever level you like, and I highly recommend checking out the Human Plus option for some amazing behind-the-scenes access and ability to be connected to our podcast guests directly. If you're looking to share an aligned message about a product or service that our listeners may enjoy, just like Humanism have today, do check out our Rocketeer tiers and above, including Spaceman and U-Tier. To join our Patreon community, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humansofpurpose. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Jeremiah as much as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremiah. Great to have you. Yeah, excited to be here. Thank you so much, firstly, for inviting me to have a whiskey on my own show because we're via Zoom and, uh, as I said to you earlier, never sure who's going to uh, who's going to be keen to join me for even a virtual whiskey. So when I saw that you're enjoying a, a lovely little treat there, I thought, oh, this is a good way to kick off. <laughs> Yeah, I think like a, a good chat is always, I guess, like socially lubricated over a nice drink. So, um, yeah, when when the opportunity presents itself, I'm always keen. Drink responsibly. Nice drink responsibly. We should slip yeah. that in there. 
Yeah, definitely uh, drink responsibly. Although I guess I'd add a lot of the best conversations for my work have come like developed out of just having a friendly chat over a beer with mates or whatever. So, um, yeah. I would say that I think uh, whiskey, I sometimes like to think to myself, what came first, the whiskey or the conversation? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that analogy. Uh, it's very ridiculous. I think it just came up uh, recently in my head. But um, moving to more important matters, um, I really got lucky in finding you because I podcasted with your your close colleague, um, I'm not sure, boss, friend, colleague, um, very recently from the CSI. Gemma Carey is doing tremendous work and she was just raving about your work. I think um, her talking about your work would have been a good percentage of the podcast. So um, <laughs> what, what better than to have you on to talk about some of the important work you've done. But um, as we like to do at Humans of Purpose, um, I'd love to hear a bit about your journey. Um, you're a very young man working in a high-profile academic field, but um, I'd love to hear the, about the journey and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so um, I've did... Uh, well, I started with research in like honours was my first real sort of touch of um, getting in stuck into political theory, which is what my my background kind of, I guess I would describe it as being I'm a political theorist by training, but my work spans across a lot of different areas. I always say to um, colleagues and friends that um, if I'm ever in a room there's on, on any given topic, I won't be the person that knows the most about it. Um, <laughs> so my PhD had like um, liberal theory. So like looking at theories of freedom, uh, measuring democracy, democratic theory, there's some quantitative stuff in there. I had like developed a new statistical technique for the thesis. So there's all like heaps of different areas, but there's none that I would be like, well, I know more about this than any one person. Um, and I guess I'm just like, I'm a pretty curious guy. So my career paths have largely been through, um, seeing how insights from one space apply to another space. So like I started with, um, yeah, looking at like how the capabilities approach, which is a theory from human development was developed by Amartya Sen, how that could help inform our understanding of democracy, um, and could enhance our understanding of freedom in the world. So that was already present in in that space where it was talked about. But the insights hadn't been very well applied in how we sort of theorised and measured democracy. So that's what my PhD topic was on, was like looking at how a capabilities approach to freedom uh, can expand our understanding of the quality of democracy in the world. Um, And I think it's a particularly useful framework because it helps us understand the position of people that are disadvantaged or vulnerable members in the community. That's um, very fascinating. And I I think, you know, one thing that Gemma talked about about your work that stood out was your work on economic dignity. And in doing a bit more research about your work, um, you know, that freedom approach or the the four ways to think about freedom um, sort of stood out as very interesting. Uh, On top of that, also, um, it's it's a unique to sort of see you take um, like a mathematical or philosophical approach and just match it or overlay it onto, um, you know, some of the complex um, issues around financial well-being. Would you mind talking a little bit about the the four ways to think about freedom? Yeah. So if you think about... um whether you ask someone if they're free to grab a pint, um, there's sort of actually, like there's four families of definitions of freedom that people might respond in. You've got freedom as non-interference, freedom as self-mastery, freedom as non-domination, and freedom as capability. Um, I'll 
freedom as capability is the definition that I subscribe to, but I'll get to that last. So freedom as non-interference is a sort of traditional definition um, to freedom. And that's kind of like you're free to the extent to which no one prevents you from doing something. Um, it's like usually the sort of legal definition. And I sort of jokingly refer to it as, you know, rich white guy freedom. If no one <laughs> was going to stop you from doing anything, then the only thing, like if you had enough money and um, there were no real social norms that said you weren't allowed to do things, the only thing that stops you from doing something is the law. Um, and so that that becomes like, and that that's historically the tradition of um, scholarship on freedom, particularly like from the Enlightened period has um really been premised on that approach to freedom. You've also got freedom as self-mastery. And this is um, your free to the extent to which you're in control of your actions. And as an approach to freedom, this is that, like self-mastery is much more about are you in control of your own actions? And we see this definition pop up sometimes when we're talking about um, whether someone's culpable for the actions they've undertaken. Sometimes um, we might not want to say that or hold someone fully responsible for something they've done. It's really out of character for them. So, um, and this gets to the question, can we always be in control of ourselves? Um, then you've got freedom as non-domination, which sits between the two. And this idea I actually think is really helpful for understanding um, instances like domestic violence, where someone might be influenced by someone else, but not necessarily um in a way that's verbalized so like the concept of domination is that you're free to the extent to which um no one else can arbitrarily influence what you're able to to do and it's that capacity for arbitrary influence that changes the relationship so like if i meet rupert murdoch in the street and he says hey do you want to grab a pint this afternoon um, he's got the capacity to influence me through the empire, media empire that he has such that I might, even though he might have no interest in directly influencing me with, with those things, I feel like he can. And so I change my response to be something that I think I'd be, would, would be acceptable. Um, and, and it's really helpful also in understanding like labor relations, the, the relationship between employees and employers, because obviously they have control of people's livelihoods. And then the last one, freedom as capability, is you're free to the extent to which you're plausibly able to do something. Um, and, and constraints can be of different kinds. Um, so, like, if you don't have enough money to do something, then you're not really able to do it. So if someone asked me, are you free to grab a pint this afternoon? On that first definition of freedom, well, I might say, um, yeah, I'm allowed to. I'm legally not prohibited from it. And actually, it's been really interesting during COVID-19 because that's been the first time in a long time that um, who, when you can go and get a pint in Melbourne has actually been constrained legislatively. Like you just couldn't go out and buy one in a bar yep. like you previously could. Um, freedom is self-mastery. It might be that like, well, I can't just go out and have one pint. So I, I'm not free. I'm not in control of myself to go get a pint. So um, then, and then freedom is non-domination. What would matter is who's asking me about whether I was able to go get, grab a pint. And then freedom is capability. Well, I might, I might actually be pretty skint this week, so I can't really afford to go out and grab a beer. Um, but maybe next week, or maybe I've made a commitment with some friends. So I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm un unavailable, and that's another kind of constraint too.
So this is yeah, fascinating yeah. stuff. So when, when one of your mates or colleagues says to you, hey, Jeremiah, I just want to catch up and um, go through you know, a piece of research you just wrote, do you go through the four levels of uh, freedom with them and sort of say, look, you know, I'd love to do that, but um... <laughs> <laughs> just, just take you through context. the framework. <laughs> I've got friends who I jokingly will say like, uh, I'm I'm unable to do that. Like I'm I'm legally constrained here. <laughs> I'm unavailable. I can imagine whatever. your uh, like, your WhatsApp banter would just be epic with uh, explanations as to why you can or cannot do things. There's a there's a lot of obscure technical references to things. <laughs> yeah. And so this is interesting. The capabilities approach and the four ways of thinking about freedom in the context of I suppose um, dire social inequality and in your research at Brotherhood of St Lawrence around financial well-being. Can you just speak to about sort of the like the usability of this work and how that's um, influenced your time in that space? Right. So. Historically, we've talked about what people are free to do in a society, and we talk about it in the Australian context, often using that non-interference definition. But if you think about people who are um, significantly under-resourced or constrained through something else, we can start to think about what they're actually like plausibly able to do. If we're thinking about it in the context of someone's financial well-being, it suggests that we should be thinking about the structures around them, right? So like does the social security system provide a sufficient level of support so that the person can actually afford to live? Um, so if we think to pre-COVID-19, like the pandemic, um, the level of like new start was I think it was $40 a day, hmm. uh, roughly. I'm, again, I'm like, um, just a rough number. And I think I'm changed since the early 80s or something. Yeah, but, well, it's pegged to um, like there's there've been changes to do to do with indexation, but not. Hang on, is that now I've got to remember the right terms. I think there's, it's, it's so. Yeah, it's, tech, so it's probably ahead. technical, but from what I understand, um, the the relative rise in the payments had not been keeping up with CPI and had de-indexed. Oh, yeah, no, no, it hadn't. It hadn't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it hadn't been adequately doing it. It's actually, I was just seeing a conversation on Twitter today talking about um, that during the, there's like been periods of time where Australia's like welfare generosity has been quite high, but generally it's actually been quite low across like the, the history of the Australian welfare state. Yeah, the, the welfare thing is, I think, fascinating in this context. Like, do you see people giving more or giving less? Um, and, you know, what kind of true colours do we show at a time like this, given the levels of constraint we may be under? Um, you know, you, you get into a lot of these conversations and you sort of see um, there's obviously a lot of can rattling that will happen around this time, a lot of really mm-hmm. important causes. But do people kind of look like they're um, reducing their exposure everywhere or are they trying to kind of step up? What have you observed? Well, so I'd say like if we're talking about it at a state level, it's, I think it's like really interesting because we've – we're in a position where a lot of the narrative, particularly in Australia, like the the notion of the deficit has just been pushed to the nth degree um, and it doesn't really align well. There's like a political economist, Mark Blythe, who I think maybe does like the best explanation of why the deficit rhetoric and logic is really not very helpful. But um, at this moment, like the government actually has the capacity to really support the economy and be really deliberate with who we support, whether it's everyone or we ensure that the most vulnerable members of the community are taken care of um, and, and the most vulnerable sectors too. Um, and it's been really, uh, so, so I guess from like a 
a state level thing, um, there's certainly been that aspect of we have the capacity to to provide support. And a lot of the, the support package that was originally announced was sort of well received. At the interpersonal level, I think that um, to me, the crisis has brought out largely the best in people. Yep. Um, I I don't know whether it's just the like the sort of groups and people that I'm involved with and know, but there was a lot of particularly early on organised collect- collectively um, going out and trying to provide support for people. So little things like, you know, getting the groceries for your neighbour who maybe can't go to the shops. Um, they're small things, but they actually suggest a kind of an ethic of care that's present in our society if we look deep enough. Um, and maybe sometimes we sort of superficially gloss over. Like it's easy to look at the negatives sometimes, but um, some of those positives are also there if if we look for them. And so maybe leading on, it's a good time to ask you, because um, a lot of your work is sort of around measuring the, you know, democratic uh, progress or what makes a good democracy. How do you kind of evaluate our performance in the past couple of months and do you think we're currently a, a good democracy? Well, it's really interesting because um, there was a lot, particularly right around the time that the, the pandemic and lockdown was happening, not just in Australia but around the world, there was... Um, conversations were happening about this is a potential moment where we can really reorient the the structure of our social security system um, and we can put some people were talking about it might be a moment where we see a UBI introduced that's a universal basic yep. income um, but actually what I think we've seen in the Australian context is just the same logic that's been applied consistently so there's in there's a um, Gosta Esping Anderson came up with what's called the um, welfare state typology. So there's sort of three different approaches to the welfare state, and the welfare state here exists to protect citizens from the market to different levels. So you've got like a liberal welfare state where the market resolves everything, and then the state just steps in to help out those who are worst off that the market can't address some of their concerns. Then you have what's called a conservative welfare state where there's certain groups that in particular the welfare state protects and the left of, and, and they have a kind of model of um, society that they want, okay, whether it's a nuclear family or whatever, and that's protected by the, the state. And then you have a social welfare state where um, programs are largely universal. The idea is that everyone receives support and everyone is able to access report it's uh, support and it's not just excuse me targeted but that it's available to everyone so there was a lot of conversation about australia potentially shifting our historically our um our models being described as a liberal welfare state right we have really like hyper targeted um, social security programs in Australia. They're very specifically designed to cover certain gaps in the employment market. Um, and there was some people were expecting we might actually shift towards a social welfare state that would provide more more easy access to care and also um, there'd be no conditionality attached to that. Um, but we've sort of seen with um, the transition from at, at New Start requirements were initially suspended um so they're like there's certain requirements around like you have to apply for a certain number of jobs each week um i can't think 
I'm very bad at remembering the names of things off the top of my head. <laughs> like, I come, it comes back to me like 30 seconds later when it's no, no, you're right. Talking. You're right. I'm sure we can all um, uh, think of what you're trying to get at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so there's a lot of conditionality around, partic- and particularly if you go back, you know, even like six months. So a lot of conditionality around Australia's welfare. Um, and when the pandemic sort of hit, there was a, the, the immediate response was to make support available not to everyone, so some groups were deliberately excluded, um, but there was initial thought that, oh, maybe the the Australian welfare state in terms of its orientation was expanding. Um, But very quickly we've seen now the door being closed on some of those things. So there's going to be a return to um, the job seeker um, requirements that's coming. I can't remember exactly what date it's being Mm -hmm. phased back in, but all these kinds of... um, requirements are coming back and it suggests that it's just more of the same as opposed I'm, I'm, um, to, uh, I'm, I'm very put off by the whole thing and I, I think our reconceptualization of the role of government has been um, pretty awful in that it's sort of the bare minimum uh, it feels like mm-hmm. and it's sort of it doesn't seem like it's very targeted towards helping those who most need help it's really about um, doing the bare minimum we can to not walk away from problems uh, I think, you know, you see that in a lot of policy responses. And um, well, I was thinking, you know, in your, in your response about, you know, social democracy and, you know, the, the, what are the countries globally that we look towards and say, God, it would be good to be a bit more like that. And I think now we'd be saying that a lot about New Zealand. Um, previously, we, we, we would have been saying that a lot about Sweden, but I think the COVID response has kind of pushed them back a bit in the pecking order. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the like, measure that I made for my PhD evaluates what's called like distributional inequality. So it's like how disadvantaged are you when you're disadvantaged? And I remember in maybe the first month of the pandemic seeing a re- really different outcomes based off different categories of um, countries. So like the US, as an example, is a... a comes under the liberal market welfare state. Same with uh, the UK. Um, And Australia is classed under that model, although um, it's kind of a bit of a hybrid because of our uh, healthcare system. Um, But, but yeah, it was really interesting seeing that um, how much more effective largely the social welfare states were. And one of the things is because they provide important services. So there's a kind of collective benefit that comes with providing those services to everyone. Um, one of the things I was just thinking about is the way that uh, the disability support pension wasn't increased while everyone else who was receiving benefits did receive an increase. To me, the logic is kind of broken there. Like if um, some members of the community need uh, have a coronavirus supplement um, in order to, because they have increased living costs, it seems really bizarre to talk about people who have specifically a health need that we wouldn't provide the same support to them. So, well, I think like um, I agree with you, and I'd say it's not very well reasoned or thought out policy, and it's uh, mm-hmm. quite a, quite using quite a blunt instrument or a lack of thought. Um, I, I would posit that the politicians that are doing a lot of this design work or are calling for it to be done are not particularly aware of the severe. Um, inequality and um, what the people who are maybe struggling the most are really struggling with in a way that it sort of filters through to how they, you know, make uh, holistic decisions. Well, I, th- I always think about it as like one size fits all uh, harms those that look the most different, right? Because like great the call. systems are just, yeah. And um, it's, 
consistently, I mean, if we talk about how the policies were constructed for JobKeeper, um, casuals who were, you might think about them as being the most precariously employed people in our economy, they were the group that was deliberately excluded. Um, and to me, it is interesting the, the way that, yeah, we consistently um, design policy for those that are the kind of, I guess what I describe as the ideal type in like scare quotes citizen, as opposed to maybe the people that we need to be thinking about more for the support that they need. So yeah, to me, it's, uh, I often, I think Gemma mentioned this when she was on the podcast, um, but I think about policy a lot from the perspective of whether it is problem oriented or whether it is principle oriented. So like a, a problem focused policy is really the key, the key driver is just there's some sort of problem that exists and we need to solve that problem. The issue that arises there is you just end up with continually putting out spot fires. A principle focus, you're kind of, you have guiding principles that underlie the structure of policy that you're building. And then when there's gaps, you can kind of address the gaps that fall. If we, we I, I think that we can kind of think about the Australian response as being really problem oriented. It's just like, oh, the economy's not functioning like it normally would. But that misses all the people who already are disadvantaged in, in the structure initially. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make is that it is very much like um, in the medical maybe analogy is it's treating the uh, the symptoms, not the actual problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and then when, when, you, when you treat symptoms, you often miss making any difference to the bigger picture um, sort of arena rules and outcomes. So I do really like your principled approach. And I wonder if you could just talk a bit about the importance of economic dignity. Um, and, you know, you've got a strong principles-based logic there. Yeah, right. So there's, there's four kind of approaches to how what you might think dignity is generally. And then that um, can be used to build a concept of ec- the idea of economic dignity. So you can kind of think about dignity as intrinsic to all people. This is the way that it's like employed in the Declaration of Human Rights. There's lots of places where we talk about dignity as an intrinsic quality to a person. And usually it's because they're, they're able to choose and therefore people's choices need to be respected. So you've got dignity as intrinsic. Um, then you have dignity as, uh, well, manner or bearing is the one that was just on the top of my head, so I'll go with that. But um, dignity as manner or bearing is that, there's an associated dignity with carrying yourself well, often in like circumstances that would otherwise apply pressure to you or, or be difficult to, to act in that particular way. Then you've got dignity as status. So there's sometimes like a dignity or a status associated with a p- particular position. So like historically, these, these have been um, positions of relevance to the state usually. Um, and so you get an awarded dignity associated with that. And then you have... Um, dignity as function so there's a dignity in serving a function to the community and often this is like associated with the notion of dignity the dignity of work so like that those kind of two ideas are connected but each of these four different aspects of dignity um, influence an idea of economic dignity because we can think about well what kind of economic structures do we need around us what kind of social structures do we need to ensure that everyone can live a life where they're able to make meaningful choices in the the economic dimensions of their life. So if we go back down to that idea of dignity as manner or bearing, um, often the kind of harms people will experience when they're um, in poverty are tied to the kind of choices that they have to make. 
So we, we've kind of, if, if we go back to talking about the, the rate of new start being at only $40 a day, well, that's not enough to live on. And when people don't have enough to live on, they have to make trade-offs between maybe it's, do I pay rent this week or do I pay for a full script of the medication that I need? And what happens to a person when they're forced to make choices between things that are essential elements of, of being a person is they, they get forced to devalue aspects of their life. And so it's really like quite toxic or can be to a person's sense of self. Um, and there's a real harm that comes with forcing to people to make choices where they, they, they deny themselves essential aspects of living. Um, yeah, and they're kind of like core ideas. And then, of course, you can sort of draw on those other ones as we shouldn't stigmatize people for the, the jobs that they have. So people often um, will stigmatize people, particularly who do physically dirty work. That's like a common space where there's stigma. Um, but these are jobs that are essential for the functioning of our society. And we really need to um, ensure that we, we don't stigmatize people for those things. And then there's... Um, in terms of dignity as status, sometimes the converse happens where we, we stigmatise people who are in low positions. So, like, if you're someone in poverty, we might actually stigmatise people for being poor. Um, and, and there's a rhetoric also that we've seen in um, some of the political debate in Australia over maybe the last, I don't, I don't know, maybe we'll say 10 years, where people who are unemployed are stigmatised for it and blamed for it yeah. as opposed to... Um, and if you actually think about, like, there's there's some really basic things that, that jar with that. So we've got in Australia, like, full employment is treated as, like, when you have a 5% unemployment rate. That's saying that 5% of people are unemployed. If we stigmatise someone as it being their own failing for being unemployed... Um, we're missing this like 5% of the story. That's 5% of people that need to be unemployed in, in the system. Like, and, and again, this is like ignoring the, like we know there's a lot more people. Uh, I think what was the, I'm trying to think of the most recent ACOS report. I can't remember the exact number that was in there, but I think it's something like there's seven people applying for every job that's available. Yeah. Like that was, and that's going back a bit. Like the, the numbers, aren't really that important. The point is that there's not enough employment. Like if we want to stigmatize people for being unemployed, well, at least you have to make sure there's a job available for everyone before that was even a notionally plausible thing to do. And even then I would say that that's a terrible thing to do. I think you, you've nailed it. And I also think there's an interesting thing there about kind of levels of privilege and what we consider to be optimal conditions. Cause you know, a lot, a lot of my circles um, are quite upset about being forced to go down to four days and um, you know, the unemployment figures do not seem to pay particular respect to people's um, what would cover their bare essentials. Like a lot of, I think a lot of people are living below the poverty line because maybe they're, they're not officially unemployed. They're working maybe one or two days a week. Um, but it's much easier for somebody who's in a circle of mine to work uh, one less day a week and get by and still support a young family versus somebody who's maybe not been permanently or regularly in the workforce for many years and they've only got, you know, half a day or a day a week. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really fascinating. The conversation we had about essential workers, you know, there was this valorization of people that, but we pay the minimum wage. We don't. We don't. You know, respect the work that people do at times. And then, um, but but like you're sort of saying, there's also this 
real significant issue that um, work itself isn't equal in our society, right? There's mm. a lot of different, um, yeah, people are uh, paid differently. There's also different access to employment in terms of jobs that meet a particular person's needs. Needs We've seen this with um, re- shifting requirements around childcare, right? So like COVID made really visible the fact that um, the life around you affects what you can do in the employment that you're undertaking. So like people can't just go to work if they've got got to take care of their kids. Um, and I mean, we're seeing a lot of data now talking about the significance uh, of gender disparities from, from the workforce or in the workforce and the fact that, yeah, women have been systematically more disadvantaged and lost more hours than men have in, and, and usually for care related reasons. But um, yeah, these are kind of like issues that should really like be, a central feature of the policy that we're we're trying to make to address the problem. Well, this is you're completely right, and I think what staggers me is there's only so many articles you can read on the conversation.edu.au that tell you that we're not appropriately valuing um, housework, and it's 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 sort of simple things like that and um, child rearing and the things that are the most important really to our society that we kind of don't put an appropriate or apportion an appropriate value to, and if we're not going to be serious about what value different jobs, roles and functions have in a household, let alone in society, and what kind of a job can we do overall at setting policy, social and economic? Yeah, that's it. Well, I think, like, we need to be having a much a much clearer conversation. I mean, I already mentioned that I think about policy in terms of, like, principles and problems, but we need to be, like, having a much clearer conversation about the principles that underpin the society that we want. Um, and that needs to be something that we're constantly reiterating. Um, Can I just challenge than- you on that um, before you go on? Um, one of the challenges of having a principles approach is, you know, the, the subjective question, whose principles and why are those principles? Do you have kind of yeah. a, a lead into that? No, that's a really good question. Um, and, and it is an important one, right? Like uh, I guess I sort of lean into that idea by saying that um, we need to start talking about principles before we can resolve that. Now there's going to be some dispute. Like let's take, for example, um, oh, we have a principled approach that is everyone should have freedom. Well, okay, then what kind of freedom, what version of it? You know, I sort of went through four different versions. Um, but I think that having that conversation is an essential an essential component of having a, a healthy society. If we're just responding to problems all the time, we miss all the gaps what's missing yeah sorry go ahead no no well said i want to ask you about something that i struggle with um talking to um, not just academics but just everyone about how they're going in covid and how are we going as a society in covid because i think there's been some real wins um in terms of the success of the public health campaign i think as a country we're doing one of the best globally in how we've addressed covid i wonder do you take issue with such things as like silver lining comments or discussing the successes that we've had in spite of the fact that there's obviously been a lot of human loss and difficulty? So I guess part of me, I I do take issue, like we shouldn't be steering towards the, um, there's like a kind of fool's gold when you just treat everything as, oh, but what is the silver lining here? Like, no, let's actually talk about the problems that have arisen. Um, And one of the things I think that's been, maybe largely missing, or not largely, I mean, people have talked about it a bit, but the mental strain on some people from what what they've been 
either required to do for work with COVID-19 um, the, and the, the changes to their working environment. Like it's just been assumed that people actually can keep on working as normal. Um, and a lot of the conversation around is around working as normal. I know for myself, like transitioning from like teaching. Um, so I'm, I teach as well as doing research and the, the volume of extra work that was present in teaching just from switching first from mid-semester, mind you, it's like change what you're doing. Um, <laughs> so just switch so that, oh, yeah, next week um, <laughs> we'll, t- we'll take a one-week one pause. This is at Melbourne Uni and like mm, we'll mm. take a one-week pause and then come back next week and have fully redeveloped your course so that you can present it on Zoom. <laughs> um, that, and and there's no like extra payment for staff. Like so, we don't talk about this enough as well either in academia. But there's a lot of precariously employed people, and they tend to make up the teaching cohort. So they're on the front lines. They're overworked for the amount that they're paid to work. Um, and yeah, they'll be like, okay, just uh, it was tr- truly bizarre to me that there wasn't. Um, a real deliberate, hey, we're, we're going to need to pay you to reconfigure some of the course that you're administering. Um, there was a little bit of like offering to support people, like you got an hour's training for Zoom and that was the, yeah. the amount. But, now, Jeremiah, but the I'm, that, I'm, I'm with you completely on that. I'd say, you know, I'm not to say that any industry is worse than another, but I, I feel in my own industry, the not-for-profit space and from people I've spoken to, no one has really addressed the uh, the transitioning costs or the or the, the costs that are imposed on the, the worker as a result of COVID measures rather than the employer taking responsibility to, you know, appropriately compensate for what is really important work right now. Yeah, there's there's a real there's the mental burden as well that goes with so much of this stuff that we leave un, unsaid. Um, I kind of think sometimes one of the the best insights from Marxism is about the idea of the the difference between capital and labor. And and as a, I mean, sometimes you might think about it, it's an oversimplified story, but if you think about what we expect workers to do, like often the way we approach it is um, like. Get even something as simple as like sick pay for not not being non-existent for casual workers. Mm. Well, actually, like the burdens on the sick person to not go into work and not get paid um, in order to protect. Well, it may be protecting their own health, but it's also to protect the rest of the workforce. It's really kind of bizarre the the ordering of things there. Yeah, and I think where that got interesting for me is that most workplaces have not done anything to sort of say, look, what what if someone gets COVID who's a staff member? Well, what we'll do is we'll just send them home, and no matter how much sick leave they have, they can just carry that economic cost. But really, I mean, what what happened to looking after your employees? It's kind of a bit staggering that um, every employer didn't say, look, if you get COVID, we'll give you sick leave for the amount of time that two weeks you need to recover because we care about you. Well, I think it's really so they like did bring in some paid sick leave around COVID in some organisations. It was a bit uncle. But the thing that I find fascinating is we didn't take that moment to say, oh, actually, we need to fundamentally redevelop the structure of how sick leave works at all. Um, and I think the other thing as well is that a lot of companies do what they're required to do um, oh, yeah. as opposed to like you know, a, a much more ethical practice. I think wh- one of the things that I love about um, working at the Centre for Social Impact is the the mindset within the team is very much one that is about supporting staff, 
ensuring we're not overworked. There's a real um, there's a real embodiment of the values that we talk about in the work that I've found um, really enjoyable since I started there. And I think like, I mean, it makes a big difference. Now I feel like I'm sliding into the the silver lining speak of like, and <laughs> and, the, and the outcome is I'm much more productive in the time that I'm working. Look, but I don't want to hear any. Real... I don't want to hear any more out of you, Jeremiah, about fool's gold. Just just accept that you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it's like the, there's something really like awesome about working in a place where you feel valued. I felt the same thing like when I was working at the Brotherhood of Saint Lawrence in my research fellowship. Fellowship it it feels really really good to turn up to work when you feel valued, when you feel trusted. And, and um, yeah, I think, I guess this is the coming back to that conversation we were having before about like the health of our democracy. One of the things I, I don't think we talk enough about when we think about or theorize democracy is the relationship that sits sort of adjacent to the, the individual and the state. And that's like the relationship that people have with business and that business has with our democratic institutions as well there's like this really under theorized i mean elizabeth anderson does great work on this this is a um it's very, quite academic some of it but talking about the way that businesses are in some ways like a private dictatorship you know mm-hmm. the the kind of um the choices that they make but the extra influence they have on your time um is is something that is quite quite interesting to think about but also has really serious implications i mean if we think about the way that from COVID 19 workers have been um, expected to go down to a reduced number of hours and then potentially work on different days um, coming back from that well if you reduce someone's hours and reduce their pay accordingly do you really have a placeholder on the rest of their week or should they be able to do what they want maybe they need to take that's that's a um, very pertinent point, and I, I would say that I know a lot of close friends of mine have been told, "Look, you're going back to four days, but you're still going to work five days, or uh, we're going to put you back to four days, but you had enough that you were doing six days before, but now you're just going to get paid for four. And what it does, and I think this is probably what you're getting at a bit as well, is it blurs that relationship between what is work and non-work time. So mm-hmm. when I when I go home and it's dinner time, or you know I'm at home because I work from home anyway, I'm. You know, at what point can I shut down Outlook and just enjoy my my the utility of my own personal you know growth or family time? And um, is is it like will it become like an Uber system where we have to clock off um, and say, look, I'm deliberately not working these hours rather than saying these are my hours? Yeah, I think it's it's such a fascinating question. I mean, I um, I was working from home for a year and it was really I found it really difficult. Um, I've, I was like, I sort of felt my mental health deteriorate a bit. It's really that line when it blurs, you you have like an, um, uh, I guess, an emotional response, but a stress response as well. So your body doesn't know when to switch off. I, I worked out for me, the best system was to do something that was physically distancing. So like um, before I'd start work for the day, I would wash the dishes. And then that was like the equivalent of a commute. And then after I finished work for the day, I'd go for a walk or something, but physically distance myself from the work. And then I was maybe able to relax a bit more, but it's that like, we need distance from things that are where we're 
investing a lot of our emotional and but also I guess acquiring a lot of stress from you need to be able to get away from that and and we we really seriously need to be thinking about that um, do you think in, um that we pay enough attention to sort of like human well-being models and you know the, the sort of looking at the economy in sort of new ways but not just the economy but maybe more of a focus um I, I noticed that New Zealand uh Scotland and a few other countries have signed up to this um you know regular reporting in a joint group around uh reporting on well-being and comparing yeah. benchmarks and indicators but I would have thought what better time for Australia to, to engage with that kind of process than something like COVID where we're really sort of starting to realise that when a global pandemic hits, it's not really about dollars and cents anymore. It's sort of about um, how do you stay healthy and safe? Um, and, but then how do you, as that kind of things become safer, what is, you know, we almost need to have a new equilibrium or social contract around what is the right um time distribution and how should we be treated by our, both our employer and the state it all seems like a new new world kind of yeah i mean it is like it's it's a world that's been shifting through um there's sort of some spaces in academia that talk about it as the proliferation of neoliberalism where we've we've seen like barriers erode between different spaces in our life um but the the atomized individual who's got to like manage everything themselves including their emotional and mental well-being um some some workplaces do it i think like much better than others like i said i'm sort of i feel really lucky being in a space that is really deliberately and actively supportive of of mental health for their staff but i think that um it's a yeah it's a really important like thing to be considering how how like what kind of mental burden and the the new zealand well-being budget is a really interesting thing there was in fact if you go back I can't remember what year it was, but Australia had one a while ago and then we got rid of it. Yeah, so I think it was um, the Human Development Index or something that got very quickly benched. It was an Australian version of that um, that might have been yeah. dating back to 2012 or something. So, sort of like almost like treated like a working paper that never really got the respect or implementation it deserved. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, for me to go back to like the stuff that started me down my PhD path, I was just really interested in like we kind of sometimes homogenize things like disadvantage. You know, we say like, oh, we, we use like inequality indexes and, and just look at how unequal is a society and treat it as a baseline number. But actually, there's real differences between one society to the next. How well, like if you're in poverty in a social democratic state, you have a lot more resources available to you that are really helpful for you in times of stress versus when you're in a really atomized liberal market state, you've got to try and demonstrate that you need assistance. And there's a real, um, real mental strain on someone to be like, prove that you deserve some sort of help. Um, I, yeah. I think that that's and that's that's to me not really in alignment with who we want to be. Um, maybe it is under the current government, but um, I'd much prefer to see us with an orientation and policy settings around let's help people um, do well for themselves, acknowledging that we all start from different places and there's too many of us starting from a really, really challenging place. Um, so, look, we could talk for ages and I'm sure we will continue to chat offline. We've already hit that kind of magic 45-minute mark. Perhaps um, given that you're somebody who, whose work I find really interesting, I'm automatically thinking about what are you reading and where are you getting your learning? Um, do you have a, a stack of books that you're, you're toying with at the moment? What are the websites you check, podcasts? Lay on me um, in, in a minute or uh, a bit more sort of what are your key go-to sources or recommendations? 
Um, I guess uh, one person I would say, so I'm, I'm a pretty online person. I'm on Twitter quite a lot. Um, if you don't follow Rick Morton, I reckon he's probably Australia's best social policy reporter. Um, he's also a very funny dude. Um, his book, A Hundred Years of Dirt, is something that I read recently. It's a great read. Um, does a really good job of talking about um, the experience of poverty. And I think that, like, that's the part sometimes when we get buried in numbers, we lose the, what the, the real experience is like. Um, I go back to it all the time, um, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. It's like 80 pages, so it's a really easy, it's not an easy read per se, but it's a short one. Um, but I'm trying, what else have I been like reading? I saw your podcast man as well. You're hitting anything good uh, recently? I do listen to a lot of different podcasts. So I find for um, the, the podcast that I always tell people that I listen to quite a lot is the Ezra Klein show. Oh, I love um, that one. Very good. So what, what I was going to say is I often disagree with Ezra. Um, in, in some of his approach to policy, he presents often like a lot of centrist logic that um, I, I guess a lot of people describe me as being like extremely left-wing or like quite hyper-progressive. But I think it's really important to understand the nature of your disagreement. Like mm. if you really want to um, advocate for a position, you need to understand what would motivate someone else to think differently on it. You, you can't convince someone until you understand why they think what they think first. Um, and that's yeah. uh, commonly referred to as steel manning and, uh, you know, instead of straw manning where you try and paint the opposition with the weakest argument possible, try and make their argument the strongest way that they might make it and that'll help you get in their position and kind of understand them. With Ezra Klein, um, I listen to his stuff because I think he's quite a good interviewer, but I do yeah. question whether he actually, I think there's a bit of hubris there or a bit of um, he doesn't seem able to not think he's the smartest person in the room. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I think that really hinders his ability to actually be better at what he does. Otherwise, I think he's great. Well, one of the like real issues that can happen when you think that you're like really intelligent is you sort of assume that people can't hoodwink you. You know, like you're just like, no, no, no. I would see this. I'm I'm so far above it. And so yeah, people sort of then can over. Um, accept things at face value but i was going to say before as well that um my mindset is always like just be optimistic about people too much of the way that our society is structured at the moment in particular like i'm just going back to like welfare conditionality it's set up on a premise that people don't want to be in a better position like we force them to jump through a lot of hoops instead of maybe just offering them the assistance that they would like um and i reckon like we lose a lot more by being pessimistic than we gain by being optimistic on and i think there's a there's a way to kind of put that into to an expression is that's to say to expect the best of everyone rather than the worst and uh um, yeah yeah and, and then opportunity. update your priors yeah, yeah absolutely right? you so know there's like, there's still some reckoning and accounting social accounting to be done but um yeah. if we went into it assuming that everyone has good intentions uh you run the risk of being naive but it's far better to be a bit naive and optimistic i think than assume everyone sucks and basically is out to get you uh <laughs> yeah. and getting an occasional you know bit of fool's gold so um, yeah, yeah. tell the audience and myself, if we want to learn more about your tremendous work and connect with you, how might we do so? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my handle's at Jeremiah T. Brown. Um, you can find my work through the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, the um, 
policy and research, so the um, research and policy center. I nearly said it the wrong way around. The RPC there, they they produce a lot of really good work um, that has, has real um, practical relevance. So not just for academics, but actually for anyone working in in the the research. Oh, sorry, in the um, non-government services sector or, or whatever. There's there's a lot of great work that's being done by BSL. Um, yeah, and, and so that's also awesome. so that's yeah. also awesome. and if people want to connect with you do you, have a, do, you want, do you want to share an email you prefer twitter or what what's your sort of preference um, there twitter uh, twitter's easy i, I yep. like the social interactions is i have a, a thread that i've been in now for two and a half years with uh um they're just people that i actually met from twitter where we just talk about the different beers that we're enjoying over the weekend so i got into um a lot of different craft beers from that. And I, so I guess it's part of that. That's what made me a real optimist. I found like online spaces are a great way to connect with people. That's that's like the perfect um, way to end a podcast. It's very optimistic, <laughs> but not too naive. I love it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeremiah and hang around and we'll have a bit of a debrief. Yeah, cool. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 